From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Wildfire spreading across California, vaping deaths, punches and counterpunches in the impeachment inquiry. The problems of the world can feel inescapable with each ping of a news alert. Darren Kagan knows that all too well. As a local reporter and later anchor for CNN, she covered the good, the bad, and the ugly, from red carpets to wars to accompanying Bono on his tour of Africa. Well, now she's focusing on the good. DarrenKagan.com showcases some of her own stories and aggregates positive and uplifting stories from around the world. So we're taking a breather with her (laughs) to talk about what turned her around and to hear some of the positive and inspiring tales that are indeed out there. Darren Kagan, journalist, author, and content. Content creator joins me in the studio. Darren, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. It is such a pleasure. I know I'm a little late, but welcome to Atlanta, even though you've been here <laughs> a little bit. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, we know network news, very demanding job, mm-hmm. and you you have to present news that can be complicated and sad and difficult while being calm and presentable yourself. In fact, you had the great example of this on the air when the second plane hit the Twin Towers on 9-11. What do you remember from that day? Yeah, I remember like it was yesterday, right? For those of us that were alive then, yeah. which is not everybody. Um, so the big thing for me was, yeah, you said it was a second plane. So the first plane, I was actually in the makeup room getting ready, and one of the producers came in and said, just so you know, there's this thing going on, and you know, you look up at the monitors just to be aware. Mm-hmm. And with plane number one, if you go back and remember, it was, I mean, our, it could was have a been a bizarre it, air yes, crash. It was a private plane, um, but to be on the air the second time, I think that was the moment that all of our worlds really changed. So you have a lot of things going on. You're, you know, you're a journalist. You want to tell the story. It's breaking news. It's what you're there to do. On a personal note, my baby sister was living in New York City, mm. and um, she was in the village. So I was doing breaking news, doing as much as I can. My co-anchor, Leon Harris, was on the air with me. We're ping-ponging back and forth. Um, And every time I would throw to him, I would turn around and frantically do something, like call. We didn't have text. Right, Um, exactly. Anything, just to try to reach her. So it was kind of a split-brain experience, part journalist, part big sister, wanting to make sure that my little sister was okay. Well, Um, that's the thing about this, mm -hmm. the emotional and the business. I mean, from a news perspective, that's a coup, you know, in the face of an unbelievable tragedy, you are there on the air. What kind of emotional toll does that take? Well, you know, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, it's, I think we're kind of warped people that go (laughs) into traditional news in a way. Um, We were talking about this a little Mm -hmm. bit before we went on the air and that it's kind of the unspoken thing, right? you as human beings, we don't want bad things to happen. However, as journalists, if a big story is going to happen, you want to be the one who gets to go cover it. So you clamor. It's like, you know, put me in, coach. Um, and sometimes it's because you're picked and because of whatever the pecking order is in the newsroom and, and that staff. And sometimes it's just luck. I mean, honestly, that morning of 9-11, that was luck, so to speak, um, because that was our regular shift of when that was going to happen, uh, of when that happened. Um, truthfully, not that long after that, they pulled us off the air to um, start promoting their, quote unquote, bigger stars. Hmm. Um, and then you just you're looking for your opportunity to get in and, and, and tell the story. Right. It, it gives you kind of a distorted vision of the world on some level. And it this does. is something that you talked about. You gave a TED talk on uh-huh. how to watch the news and how to be inspired by it. And you told your own story mm-hmm. of what happened after CNN did not renew your contract. Mm-hmm. So for you, a dual meaning there of being let go. What, right. what were those meanings? So I was let go, which 
usually has a bad connotation, right? We're going to have to let you go. Right. Uh, after 12 years, um, I loved CNN. I loved my job. There's a good chance I would still be sitting there if they hadn't let me go. That being said, it was a chance to let myself go and ask myself, what do I really want to do with my life and with my career? And this feeds into you know your previous question of, is this really what you want to do? Do you want to spend every single day coming to work talking about doom and gloom? Yeah. And at this time in my life, I'd kind of started my own personal journey. So in my personal life, I was focusing on positive and uplifting things. And then I was coming to work and talking about doom and gloom. And it really wasn't a match. And so that was my opportunity to set off in an entirely different direction. Looking for good news. For good the good, news. The good right. news game. Yes, the good, yes. <laughs> well, people do want to be informed, of course. Yes. Natural and disaster. I think that's important. I do. Yeah. yeah, so finding that sort of balance mm-hmm. between knowing what's going on in the world and, and and getting access to things that aren't necessarily, I don't know, overwhelming. So how can people take in information without being so overwhelmed? So I think it's actually a very exciting time in media. From I think the whole power paradigm has shifted. So if you go back even 20 years ago and then before that, We were captives of you had to sit on your couch and wait till six o'clock for somebody in New York City to tell you what's the news, what's important, what order, how long, and that's all you get. I mean, if I told you that, if I said, Virginia, okay, I'm going to be totally in charge of all the content and everything you get, you would look at me like, you're like, Darren, you're nuts. You're not the the voice on high. You are not. You are not the boss of me. (laughs) You're not. I mean, the power now is in your hand, whether it's the phone you're holding or the mouse. Um, for your computer or your laptop, the consumer is in charge. And so you, being if the, whoever's listening, or you, Virginia, or me, Darren, you get to decide what's going in that head of yours. And there's so many sources. Now, that part can be overwhelming, I'll, I'll grant you. But you get to decide how much impeachment. Well, not, maybe not you, because this is your job. <laughs> but the consumer gets to decide how much impeachment you're going to take in, how much fires, how much shootings, um, I think it's really important to be informed, but you take it to the point of where you're inspired and then ask yourself, okay, what can I do with that and what change can I make? Darren Kagan is with me. She's an author. She's a content creator. And we're talking about how you can use the news to both inform and inspire Mm -hmm. you. That's right. Inspire you, which is not something you generally think of. I mean, people are inspired to action because of anger, you know, because they Mm -hmm. hear something on the news. But to be inspired by stories that give you another perspective on another life. In fact, the first story that you you worked on about a double amputee is named Scott Rigsby, who wanted to make history. How did he set out to do it? So Scott is from here in Atlanta. Well, he's from Georgia, but he lives here in Atlanta. He's a double amputee. Um, He wanted to become the first double amputee to complete the Ironman triathlon, like the Big Mac Daddy one, not like a cute little weekend one, (laughs) which is kind of nuts. Um, So I went and shot a story with him for DarrenKagan.com. And of course, one of the obvious questions is, don't people tell you you're nuts? You know, this has never been done before. And he presented to me this idea of the energy budget. And this helps me every day of my life. So we all understand the financial budget, right? You don't have to tell me, but I bet you know how much is in your bank account, right? right? And you know how much you can spend on your rent, on your vacation, on your clothes, on going out tonight. um, Because there's a certain finite amount of money there. Well, every day we wake up, we have a certain finite amount of energy. Um, How much I have today is different than how much you have, how much I might have tomorrow. So I get to decide what I'm going to spend that on. 
And as Scott explained to me, he's like, look, if I'm going to make this happen, I need to spend my energy on swimming this much, running this much, biking this much every single day. I choose not to spend my energy on the people who are telling to tell me that I, I'm never going to do this. That's a choice. Um, by the way, I will um, give you a spoiler. He did make history. And um, <laughs> the story's on the website, but you get to see him crossing the finish line at, Co- at Kona with uh, two arms overhead. So really inspiring. So what kind of response did you get? Um, to the story? Yeah. Oh, the story. I mean, people love that story. Um, he's made a speaking career out of that story and, and written books on that story. And, um, and you know, that's one of the side effects of of my job. It's really hard to have a pity party day <laughs> because we all try to have them, right? You know, and like, okay, well, here's Scott Rigsby without legs uh, making history. All right. I'm over myself. So what um, did that tell you about the hunger that other people have for stories that are uplifting? I, I mean, I see it every day. I can watch my traffic. Yeah. I can see which stories sell, so to speak. I can see uh, what sells on social media, what people get excited about. I think the important thing with this kind of news, though, too, is size, right? Because you can also, an inspiring story could also kind of maybe get you down because you could say, well, I would never do that. Shoot, I right, have Right, I would never legs. sell my my home to go work in famine. Exactly, torn. I'm not going right. to do that. Um, but the neat thing is, is you can find something that fits your size. Like I just posted a story on the website before I came over, Sarah Jessica Parker, the actress from Sex and mm-hmm. the City. She had posted on her Instagram um, earlier in the week, someone stole all the pumpkins off their front stoop in New York City. And huh. she was like, oh, what's wrong with humanity? Well, this morning she posted, someone unbeknownst to her had come, actually a couple of people, and had left little pumpkins on her front door. So when she was like, oh, the ki- decency wins, the kindness. The um, She's so excited about that. My point is, there's a big scale of doing good in the world that we can all kind of figure out what you have room in your energy budget for. Somebody's going to have energy to go make history, to go make a huge social change. And sometimes it's just about doing one little kind thing that is going to just rock someone's day. So I want to go back to that idea of, you know, when there used to be just three networks Mm -hmm. and you'd get the news Mm -hmm. from on high. Maybe at the end of the local news, you'd get the story about the cat up on the roof that was rescued, right? right? Kitties and rainbows. Right, exactly. Uh But so you spend a lot of time in news meetings and editorial conversations. And you know, positive stories, do-gooder stories get get pitched, but they're not deemed as newsworthy. So how for you did you realign your thinking to this is a story? So, yeah, if it bleeds, it leads, yeah, right? And right. it's not going to make, we don't have time for that. Um, so I I think I was starting to get ready for this journey before I even left CNN. It did help that I had my own show. And so I could say, oh, I'm going to go do this story on my own time. I would see the stories that I loved and fit them in where I could. Um, so I was getting ready for those kind of stories. Um, and then, you know, it's this time that we're in. If it was just three networks, um, there wouldn't be room for it because there's 22 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And and the people with a certain bias, and I'm not even getting into political bias, it's a news bias of this is what people want to see. They're deciding what gets in and what doesn't. But now there's room for websites and social media and Facebook pages. There's other places to open other stores, so to speak. I'm not trying to tell CBS or your program or CNN that they need to be wall-to-wall good and uplifting news. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of liken it to when you go shopping. You know, you're going to the butcher for your meat. You're going to the grocery store to get your paper towels. And you go to the bakery to get something sweet. You don't show up at the bakery angry that they're not selling steak, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I look at it as I'm running a bakery. 
I'm selling the sweet stuff. It's important to have the other things. I wouldn't try to tell you your diet should all be uh, sweet stuff. Absolutely not. But that's my niche. Well, the other thing is, uh, you know, sometimes we'll see like the, the, the video of the kid pushing back at the bully and everybody's looking at that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, but you actually got to follow up on some. We have just a minute left. But okay. there's this story about a woman who quit her job to search for her dog for 57 days. Just an amazing story. Right. So, um, and I will say dog stories go crazy on DarrenKagan.com. Um, so this Maybe is, your own affinity. Exactly. My own butters listening. That's, um, uh, anyhow, this is a woman. She was a postal worker, semi-retired in Washington State. And she and her husband took their rescue dog to Montana for a vacation. They went out to dinner the first night. They come back and the dog had been spooked and took off. And they looked and looked and looked for that dog and they couldn't find it. They go home. She knows I can't do this. And so she quit her job. She, she did ask for a leave. People said I would ask. She asked for a leave. They said, no, you can't do it. So she said, okay, I'm quitting. And she went back and she just worked that neighborhood for 57 days, sleeping on people's couches, doing what she could, putting up posters. And let's just say that Katie the dog is now home with Carol oh, King and her husband. Okay. Yeah, so, happening. all right. So there is this beautiful good news yeah. feeling that mm-hmm. you get from something like that. That is filling up my little energy budget for today. Well, there you go. And then I hope you stop by DarrenKagan.com and see more. Darren Kagan, DarrenKagan.com again is an author, journalist, and a content creator. Her 2016 book is called Hope Possible, a networker's thoughts on losing her job, finding love, a new career, and my dog. Always my dog. Always Thank my you dog. again for Thank being you, with Virginia. us. Now, we might have to ask you to come back and give us some more of those uplifting stories from time to time. You're listening to Modest Mouse's Float On, because as they say in the song, good news is on the way. And tell us, what's some positive or inspiring news you've heard lately? Coming up, Elton John is on his way to Atlanta. We're going to talk to his longtime lyricist, Bernie Toppin, when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. You will find it at the steps of the Capitol, hung from front porches, draped over caskets of fallen soldiers, and splashed across bathing suits and ball caps. The American flag, symbol of patriotism, unity, and power, and just one of the components of Bernie Toppin's art. Name sound familiar? Well, you might recognize some of his other work. I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind. That's right, the Bernie Toppin, whose lyrics and 50-plus-year partnership with Sir Elton John have created some of the most influential and successful songs in music history. Both men are heading to Atlanta. Sir Elton on his farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, and Bernie for a new exhibition of his visual work. It is called Lost and Found at the Bill Lowe Gallery in Atlanta. And Bernie is joining us now on the line from Nashville to tell us more about it. Bernie, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be here with you. Well, your exhibition coincides with this final performance of Elton John's tour. Really, about Atlanta. Both of you share an important relationship with the city. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, especially Elton. Uh, Elton has had a residence there for well, 
a long, long time. I mean, um, it's a great city and uh, has a sort of great cultural quality to it. Uh, it's a very significant part of the South, and we've always had a great relationship with the South, especially with the music that's come out of it. And uh, for me, certainly historically, and it, it plays a big part, I think, in a lot of the musical pieces that I've created, mm-hmm. especially you know, things that have a Southern roots uh, value to them. Right, and that's a lot of the work that you're doing now. I would love to talk about using guitars and kind of elements of the musical roots of the mm-hmm. music that you came to later make. You you do these assemblages of big pieces, so oftentimes mm-hmm. found objects or objects that you intentionally age and create to give a, a sense of a different time or place. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you explained it very well. Uh, a lot of the things that I use are found objects, uh, especially, you know, uh, panels of wood that I find on the side of buildings that have been aged naturally. You know, I am sort of gravitate towards things like that. Um, and then, obviously, as you say, a lot of the instruments that I use, I buy them new, and then I, I sort of age them, I, I burn them, I stain them, I sand them, uh, break them up, put them back together to give them the, uh, to give a sort of, it, it, I, to give it the best terminology, it's like musical archaeology. Uh, I want to give the the idea of these these instruments and these musical genres as being resurrected because I feel in this age we're moving so fast we tend to forget our heritage we tend to forget the musical genres that uh, gave us what we have today and especially in the areas of, of traditional country and traditional blues and uh, hill, old hill music gospel. Um, a lot of the people that created that music tend to be forgotten, and I, I, for me, I can't imagine letting that happen. But as I say, it's sort of like archaeology. It's like refinding them and, and giving a rebirth to that kind of music. Well, I've seen some of them. Roosevelt Sykes, sometimes their names right on them. Uh, Charlie Patton, foundational kind of musicians that created what became rhythm and blues, what became rock and roll, what became pop mm-hmm. music, I would say. So in Exactly. The, but, but I'm wondering about the symbolism of some of the objects that you choose. Obviously, you said guitars, banjos, you know, I've seen that kind of thing. But also the American flag, this unbelievably potent symbol. What is the fascination for someone born in, in Britain? You've long been a U.S. citizen, or you've long been living in the U.S., you can correct me there. But, but right. what is the fascination with that Amer- these American roots and symbols? It's probably my most uh, the, the most iconic symbol that I work with on in many many different ways, and it's interwoven into the musical pieces simply because these genres that I'm I'm dealing with and dis- uh, having people discover are purely pure pure American. Uh, forms of music so they go hand in hand with each other you know they are Americana pure Americana and the flag for me is such as I say such an iconic symbol it's so malleable it's it's such a wonderful recognizable image uh, its significance is, is recognized all over the world and for me I've always thought of myself as 
100% American. I mean, I've lived here since 1970. Uh, and before that, even growing up, everything that I was interested in, everything I gravitated towards came from this country. You have incorporated pieces of flags, sometimes crumpled, sometimes even burned. Um, thinking of an image that I saw, the burial of William Sycamore. So is right. there is there something, I mean, have you ever faced any kind of clap back for, quote, mistreating the flag? Well, it's interesting that you should say that, because I think what I'm doing is treating it with the greatest respect. And a lot of people don't understand that the, the way to dispose of a flag actually is to burn mm -hmm. it. You know, um, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, obviously, to burn it with respect, you know, but uh, I think that's what I'm doing, because you have to understand that the flag has an incredibly bloody history. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fallen, it's risen, it's been stuck under the floorboards of prison camps, it's been, you know, buried in the rubble of 9-11, uh, it's been trampled on on battlefields, but it always comes back. It has a great way, it has tremendous resilience. Um, families have fallen servicemen have given me their flags uh, because they respect what I do. Um, they understand what I do. That, that in, a, in a nutshell, is, is enough for me. When I start getting flags given to me by servicemen or families of fallen servicemen, you know, that, that's, that's all I need to say. Mm. Bernie Toppin is my guest, a poet, visual artist, renowned lyricist for his collaborations with Sir Elton John and for his own music. He's written the lyrics for some of John's most famous songs, and there's an exhibition of his art now on view at the Bill Lowe Gallery in Atlanta. I'm curious, though, Sir Elton's biography or memoir, Me, has just come out, and he talks right. about how he he was a young boy from England. I mean, you all started when you were like seven. You were 17, I think, if I've got that right. That's correct. 19, 1967. So it took work, certainly, but then there's fame. And then you're rock stars in the 1970s, you know, touring America, touring the world, um, selling zillions of records. And for him, he spun out, right? And he became addicted to drugs and alcohol right. Right. I'm just wondering for you, how did you avoid that fate that, you know, the, the behind the music arc that so many people are not equipped to, to deal with? Well, I, let's, let's face it, we all have our demons at certain points in our life. You know, I, I've certainly been no angel. Um, and, you know, I've, I've gone through periods of the, the same sort of things that he did, only probably not to the extent that he did. But, you know, we all wrestle with, you can't go through this, the, the kind of um, lifestyle that we led back then, certainly in the 70s, and, and not sort of uh, have your own pitfalls at, at one time or another. So it, it's uh, it kind of got, unfortunately, they seem to go hand in hand, and that's not necessarily a good thing. We, we, but, just, we uh, just haven't seen your memoir. Is that it, Bernie? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably the same old story, but you know, you, you can, you can read several of the others and just insert my name instead <laughs> of the person that's there. Well, I guess I'm projecting my own perception because I think of the, the Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. You know, this was a record that you made in the nine, in right. 1975. Let's first just hear a little bit of that. This is, this is the song Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy from the album of the same name. Down the top. 
think of him in his sort of dazzling platform shoes and shiny sequined outfits and feathers and etc. And you, Brown Dirt Cowboy, is that is that a title that you gave yourself? It is, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I gave us both these titles. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm not sure, it's a good question actually, because I don't have no recollection of where I came up with those ideas. I think it was just something that just popped into my head one day and it seemed to uh, be the right tagline for the way that we sort of lived our lives. Well, that's what I was thinking of, the brown dirt cowboy, you know, the Right, the, right. The, the, the but I came, I came from a very, very rural background. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, where I was born was very sort of isolated and tremendously rural. The, the choices were very limited. It was pretty much uh, you, you either worked on the land or you worked in a factory in the closest city. Going back to the work that you've done, you know, you're putting your hands on things, you're making things. There's something very, especially the idea of doing musical archaeology, digging in the dirt. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, is this, a, is this a lifelong pursuit for you on some level? Yeah, I, I think uh, I've always, I've always enjoyed, uh, like you say, getting my hands dirty. I mean, I, I'm not the sort of person that uh, puts up an easel on the side of the road and gets out of, you know, his watercolors and does a very sort of genteel landscape. That was never really uh, on in the cards for me. I always wanted to do the kind of work that I'm creating now. I mean, you're, like any artist, you you very much start by emulating the people that you respect. But in, And it's the same with music. I mean, it, it, it works the same way. But... Uh, Obviously, the ultimate goal is to find your own voice. I also see story in your work. Uh, I hope I'm not projecting that too. You know, there sometimes there's actually written text. Um, mm-hmm. This this is you know something writing and lyrics and and poetry is something that you have been using your whole life as a creative. Uh, do you know where that impulse came from, or can you tell us where well, it first started? You know, yeah, I mean, a lot of my early work didn't have text in it simply because I didn't want people to uh, relate it to my writing. I wanted to keep it very much separate. But now I'm much more comfortable with the fact that people really respect my art. I've got, a, a I think, a, a notoriety in the art world now. But there's... You know, people who've been hearing your songs know you from your music for 50 years or know that music. How do you balance that kind of notoriety in that realm with the art world, which, let's face it, not as many people are going to have access to? I think I think you have to understand now things are a lot different, um, especially in the age of social media. You know, I'm on Instagram. I've got thousands of followers. Um, so people, I think, have a closer proximity to you. They feel more uh, in touch with you. They feel you, they have a personal grip on your life. You know, I, my my Instagram's pretty interesting. It's not just like a collection of pictures every day. You know, so I, I never I never take anything for granted. I, I'm uh, very appreciative of of what we have done over the the you know, the past 50 years and and people have come along for the ride and I'm uh, internally grateful for that. Oh, okay. So I am curious about your 
view of the movie Rocket Man. I mean, your relationship was an ascent with Elton John was an essential part of the movie released earlier this year. Some of these, the the film is fictionalized. The timeline's not in order, for example. But I'm wondering for you, what was it like to see yourself portrayed, and and do you feel like it was accurate? I thought it was great. I loved it. You know, I I'm I'm just a fan of the movie. You know, luckily. We had the luxury of the film being basically our film. It wasn't like it was made independent of us and we had no say in it. I mean, Elton and David Furnish, his husband, are the producers of the movie. And I had 100 uh, percent say in everything that happened in the movie. So, uh, you know, I, I have no complaints whatsoever. I'm, I'm just along for the ride. I, I thought Jamie did a, an extraordinary job. I mean, we've all uh, and to have a, an actor of his stature to, to portray me was just the icing on the cake. And, you know, we've done so much stuff together, all of us over the last, you know, uh, four or five months since the movie came out. So we're, it's like one big family now. We've sort of intertwined and, you know, our doppelgangers are our friends. And <laughs> Just last weekend, Elton John had to cancel a concert in Indianapolis saying he was extremely unwell. And his mother-in-law also passed away just last week. So you did go to see him at his show in Nashville earlier this week. How'd it go? how do he seem to you? Fantastic. He was great. I think the extremely unwell was slightly exaggerated you know i mean he he was just exhausted exhausted is, is a much better way of putting it um but yeah he was he was just i think with the um with the passing as you say of his uh mother-in-law um it it was just uh it was just pretty hard on mm, him i'm so sorry bernie toppin thank you so much for your time thank you so much Bernie Toppin, a longtime musical partner with Elton John, who wrote lyrics for many of the songs that you've come to know and love. His visual art reveals a whole other side to his creativity, and you can check that out at Bill Lowe Gallery in Atlanta. The exhibition is called Lost and Found, and it's on until November 22nd. Both Bernie and Elton are on their way to Atlanta. Bernie for the art show, and Sir Elton for his farewell Yellow Brick Road tour. So naturally, we have to leave you with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Stay with us for Atlanta band Omni talking about their new album, Networker, which is out today. We'll be right back with On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Sub Pop Records in Seattle has churned out a number of hit makers. There's The Shin, Sonic Youth, and Soundgarden, and who could forget Nirvana? And they keep on coming. One of the newest additions to their roster, Atlanta Locals Omni. The 
The band has gotten a lot of buzz in the last couple of years with their previous album, 2016's Deluxe, and in 2017, Multitask. Well, today, Omni's debut album on Sub Pop is out. It's called Networker. You're listening to one of the tracks. It's called Sincerely Yours. The band has embarked on a two-month tour with dates in Europe and the U.S. They're at the Earl in Atlanta on Monday, so while they're in town, we've asked Omni bassist and singer Philip Probos to join us in the studio. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, so Networker's out today. How long has this album been in the works? Oh, I guess you could say about a year, maybe, maybe a little longer. We've been totally focused on the album for about a year so we, not touring so much mm-hmm yeah last uh fall was when we kind of wrapped up the touring for previous uh records and just gave went all in on networker so this album and multitask were both recorded not in some fancy studio in town but actually a cabin in south georgia what's the story there that's accurate um so basically we uh we are recorded by our buddy Nathaniel Higgins, and uh, we've kind of just acquired a bunch of recording equipment over the last few years and just kind of built up a bit of a like slapdash studio. And uh, when we started to record Multitask, we kind of had the idea like, let's just get out of town like we can easily throw all this stuff in the van and just go anywhere and uh frankie's family has a nice little cabin down in vienna so we went down there and uh we kind of i think perfected that model this time whereas last time it was like oh that was a good that was a good trip now we're like we're we're going we're doing this whole album down here that's interesting because it sounds I would say that this album, the songs that I've heard so far, are are much more tightly produced, maybe a little less loose than others, which would make you think that, you know, you stepped up to the, the great fancy recording studio. But this was done in a cabin. Yeah, well, we did, we had some new techniques that, uh, so for instance, I know that um, with our drum uh, production, like we built kind of a little tint of blankets and wood around the drums that we we would that's super high tech right well hey you know (laughs) some sometimes you got to go back to go forward if you know what i mean (laughs) apparently this was something that hollow notes did on this one record that we particularly liked the drum sounds on Mm -hmm. now whether or not we got the hollow notes drum sounds i'm not totally sure but i think it did our record pretty well that may be the last band I would think of when I would think of your <laughs> of Omni Hollows. Yeah. <laughs> so when you guys go to this cabin, do you go and all stay there? Yeah. Um, we are only recording when we're at the cabin, so mm-hmm. we don't really do any writing. We did a bit of uh, kind of last-minute stuff on some things we had written while we were down there on the last session, but um, most of the writing happens here in Atlanta. And, um, yeah, I, I think it, it is pretty much our daily lives here that get filtered into it all. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I hear, you know, on multitask, networker, these are talking about 
I mean, those are things that we think of as being very sort of contemporary urban life, right? You know, yeah. multitasking and networking and, and that always on kind of culture. Mm -hmm. So is, is that any of what was behind these records? Um, certainly for multitask, because when we were finishing that one, we just had, we didn't, I don't think we even realized we were going to be a band as full time as we were at that moment. And, uh, it was like kind of a joke that just became a reality. I mean, not that, not the band, but you know, the multitask, the title. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, we so that was a an interesting adjustment, and then with Networker, uh, we had a little more room to breathe. So, yeah, I guess in some ways it, it's kind of like the post multitask come down, but but in a, like a really positive and. Uh, creatively flourishing kind of way. Yeah, because I think a lot of the songs on Networker that I'm thinking of, they're about trying to connect. You know, they're not quite getting through. You're trying, you're waiting on some level for some kind of connection. So is, does it all come together in Networker? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, I think you're kind of left with a dial tone. I, <laughs> which is, Isn't that old, like the old, the old AOL tone when you're trying, <laughs> when you're trying to get on to the internet uh kind of maybe more like left on hold like you know like at the end it's like are they gonna pick up we'll see <laughs> wait you gotta wait till the next one yeah i guess so. that's your next record yeah. well this is the perfect time to play a song from the new record it's called courtesy call singing is we don't hear you singing in that little bit but i i'm gonna say it's not detached but there's something like i don't know there's a kind of nonchalance to it which i think fits the material that you're not too sort of eager in some kind of way there's a single that came out earlier this fall in september called skeleton key on the album let's play a little bit of that and get a sense of it All right, so we get a little bit more of a glimpse of what your vision of what social media, the presentation of you. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a, a weird reaction to learning what the reality of being on Tinder is. <laughs> But not my not my own personal. Uh, oh, ask you're doing this for a friend. Other, other people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what what's your read of that experience? Uh, I find it to be kind of dark, but I also thought that it's kind of funny too. Just I don't know. I've I've never. I know a lot of people have had a lot of wonderful luck with online dating and mm -hmm. connecting romantically. So I don't want to be. Uh, I don't want to put that down because I don't feel that way. But as I've never, since I've never experienced it, and I've experienced it through other people, it is bizarre to me. I mean, I guess you know, it is just the digital version of like you know, going to the bar or whatever at the grocery store. But but that you're still lacking in any initial. There's no real world chemistry. They're doing it. The machine's doing it for you. Mm -hmm. which 
I remember expressing some skepticism about it myself, and and somebody said to me, you know, they might have, just imagine when the telephone first came out, and people said, really, you can connect with somebody using this hard, cold piece of plastic and think that you know who they are, you know, and and many people have fallen in love over the phone, you know, right, and, right. and so... I, I started to think about it a little bit differently, but like you, I have not had that experience. Um, yeah. No judgment on it, but of course, but yeah. you know, maybe it's actually on my part fear. You know, yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's very scary to me to think of like putting yourself out there and trying to appeal to somebody in this, you know, just two dimensional medium. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely am guilty of uh, you know long long time long hours uh you know talking on the phone like especially much younger and you know i mean some that was some of you know my fondest memories of of that time however i feel like maybe how it's all everything's via text now there's you know there's no voice yeah there's something uh also odd with that because people have uh maybe are a little more bold yeah, uh, which is also odd because I guess you're getting like a a different facet of people's personality. So you've reminded me of another song. Funnily <laughs> okay. enough, present yeah. tense. I think it's about you talking to your wife while on tour on the phone. Let's yeah. let's hear it. Is present tense off of the new album Networker by the band Omni. Philip Frobos of the band is with me, and we're talking about dating. <laughs> we're talking about online dating because that's something neither of us do, funnily enough. So, in the last couple of records, you you you've aimed or said that you've aimed to write about like satirical vignettes. So. What is it about that kind of like little compact storytelling that that interests you? Um, I I think I'm I'm kind of a student of the kinks, and I just like I love the way that they have these songs that are they're like kind of they're kind of funny, a little charming, and then there's something that's a little bit messed up happening in them, like mm -hmm. sunny afternoon, yeah. like. The character is obviously like really miserable. My girlfriend's run up with my car and gone back to her mom's telling tales of drunkenness and cruelty. Now I'm the thing that I'm trying to do is do a updated version of that, but you know, with various other influences and whatnot. Uh, that reminds me of another song, Genuine Person. This is a, a, a record. Uh, this is a song about a character who's not quite as they seem. That definitely does have a little kinksy vibe, right? That little kind of portrait of this it's also a, a self-declared person you know like this mm -hmm. is who i am which right. is interesting right. so tell me about the origins of that song if you can um that one was kind of that one definitely took a little while to come to fruition because frankie and i it was the last song that we wrote before we left on this like 
gigantic European tour in the summer of 2018. And we didn't really get back on the songwriting horse until the fall. So we we were left with just the guitar, bass, and then I wrote the a part of the vocals. So it was really fun to, like, when we revisit, we're like, does this sound like uh, a song that needs to be on the record? And we both found it to be really charming. Uh, so it was really fun to build it up as a entire piece again. Mm-hmm. Especially like the having the drums and the the final part of the song. Like I feel like that, that we're really proud of that. Do you and Frankie write most of the songs together, or there's three of you in the band for? The- yeah. So. Uh, Frankie and I write the songs and perform uh, on the records, and Chris uh, Yonker is our live drummer. Mm-hmm. When I listen to these songs, I think they're very writerly. I don't know. Are you are you a writer, like a fiction writer, short story writer, or a lover of writers? Oh yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I think I I'm trying to be a writer. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, I definitely am. That was one thing that I really took advantage of when the band kind of uh, took off is the amount of time we have in the car. I trained myself to be non-car sick, so I'll try to read as many novels as I can. Because I feel like when I was in my early 20s, I didn't really read as much as I would have liked to have. So I'm kind of playing catch up on a lot of classics and and whatever else people recommend so it's been really cool to just feel totally inspired by something that you know is renowned for that Any, yeah. anything stand out for you for books i guess i'm currently reading a uh joan didion uh collection called the white album mm-hmm. and uh i got that after uh Emily, my wife, and I finished slouching towards Bethlehem. Bethlehem yes, another great and, uh, John Didion. Yeah, yeah. We just loved that one, and she just immediately ordered the White Album. So when that came in the mail, that was pretty exciting. Okay, I'm really waiting to see how this comes out on the next record, being influenced <laughs> by their White Album. Yeah. Um, but the, that song that we mentioned earlier, uh, Present Tense, you know, that's a love song, I think, or as close as we get to a love song yeah. on an Omni record. <laughs> Um, do you write things down and then you guys work it out as a band? So we always do the music first because I feel like that's uh, the most important part. Because if if the music's no good, then even if I write, you know, a fantastic uh, literary piece, it will be wasted on bad music. So uh, we, yeah, we always uh, fine tune the song and then. I used to try to like write the lyrics and melodies like night of mm-hmm. on this, which which I you know feel like we work. had some success with. Like it, it's kind of a cool workshop idea, and I'm proud of a lot of that stuff. But with this one, I uh, took took some more time and uh, stretched out a little, and I feel like really proud of the way this record came together too. And Frankie gave me, you know, feedback all along the way. Also, like I, it'd be funny because I like even on present tense, like there would be a part on the chorus where I I would think, I don't know if Frankie's going to like this melody, but I feel really good about these ones. 
And then I'd send it over, and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, maybe you try something different on this one. And I'd be like, I knew it. <laughs> and, I'd be like, and then I would make a, something new, and it would be better. Hmm. And so I feel like that's kind of the, uh, the creative uh, back and forth that is important uh, moving forward for us. But, I think that you could call that networking. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Me and Frank, we're just networking <laughs> all the time. Well, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you. And have a wonderful time on the tour. Thanks. Philip Frobo, singer and bassist for the Atlanta band Omni. Omni's new album, Networker, is out today. They are currently on tour with dates in the U.S. and Europe, but they'll be playing in Atlanta on Monday at the Earl. That's in East Atlanta Village. And that's it for our show today. We're going to leave you with another song from the new album. This one is called Underage. Underage.